Luke 23 will be our study both this morning and this evening, taking two slightly different approaches. I hope how will become clear to you. Luke chapter 23, reading from verse 32 this morning. Christ has been passed back and forth between the Jews and the Romans, and now he has been condemned despite the repeated testimonies to his innocence legally, condemned by Pontius Pilate, and he has been led away out of Jerusalem. Simon, who we thought about a little last week, has been brought in to carry the cross so that Christ might come to the place of death, and he's spoken to the daughters of Jerusalem and warned them about what the future holds for those who do not repent. And now from verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's again seek the help of God. Oh God, most merciful, what can we do as we come to such things as this? Which of us has a mind that is broad enough to grasp what takes place here? Which of us has a heart that is deep enough to feel in response to what we read? Which of us, without your spirit, can begin to grasp this great transaction, the operations of salvation, the work of Jesus Christ as he suffers and dies? Lord, teach us, we pray. Teach us that we may know you, trust Jesus Christ as he makes known your saving love, that we may understand who he is, what he does, and love and adore him, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's just called skull. In Greek, cranium like cranium. 
In Latin, Calvaria, which is where you get the name Calvary. In Aramaic, Golgotha. Three names, three languages, the same place. There, they crucified him. Considering that this is the point to which Luke has been building for so long, that language may seem a little underwhelming. It's very stark, is it not? Very simple for an event that isn't just at the crux, the, the, the heart of Luke's gospel, but the very crux of history. This is what your salvation depends upon. Salvation hangs on these moments. And it may be that Luke uses this simple language, as do the other gospel writers, to ensure that we do not overemphasize the physical agonies and lose sight of the spiritual realities. Whole books have been written trying to understand this ancient and vile practice of crucifixion. And they are in some ways helpful, useful in grasping some of what is taking place, understanding some of the details that are described or implied in the gospel histories. But there is a danger that we get taken up with the beatings and the bruisings, with the nails, with the crown of thorns, and lose sight of the fact that here is that man who himself without sin is being made sin for us. This then is the climax of the sufferings of the Saviour who, if you remember a long time ago, had set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing that this was what waited for him there. As he went, if you recall, what had been one of the keynotes of his teaching as he speaks to his disciples as he warns the people who are rejecting him or ignoring him. He has insisted upon the fact that we must live now in the light of then. That eternity is more important than time and that time matters insofar as it has an impact upon eternity. And he said you need to think about what lies ahead you need to consider whether or not you are safe. You need to think in the light of the day of judgment. You need to consider that this world is not everything, that there is a world which is to come. And Christ says that in part because that's how Christ lives. Perhaps you, you hear him say those kinds of things. This, this seems very strong. This seems very demanding. This seems very absolute. Brothers and sisters, how thankful we should be for the absoluteness of our Lord's understanding, for the strength and the clarity of his appreciation that some things are far more important than others and these are the most important things because that's why he kept going and that's why he pleaded with his father in the garden, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And it's what brings him to this point. He has lived and he has served and now he suffers and he dies because there is a salvation to be accomplished, because there is a heaven to be gained and there is a hell from which we should flee. And so he's crucified. He's been stripped naked. 
They've hammered in the nails. And they've dropped the cross into the ground. Here is the second Adam. What did Adam do when he knew himself a sinner in the garden? He hid himself. The second Adam has nowhere to hide. Sin has been loaded upon him and he hangs utterly exposed before God and men. Here is some of the shame of the cross. Let's trace now through this sequence some of the more important elements of which we need to take account. The first is the prophecies that are fulfilled. The prophecies that are fulfilled. Now Luke, because of who he is and why he's writing and those to whom he's writing, doesn't draw attention to these prophecies always in the way that, for example, Matthew does. Matthew's writing more for a Jewish audience, so he insists upon joining those dots. Luke doesn't so much draw attention to those fulfilments, but rather weaves them in. And again, this is why it's so important that we understand our whole Bible. We read all the scriptures. Because you can't read this if you know Isaiah 53. And you can't read this if you know Psalm 22. And there'll be other portions as well where you're, you're, you're sort of... If you didn't know that those things had been written centuries beforehand, you would do what unbelieving scholars do and conclude that someone must have backfilled some of this detail. But what we have here is prophecy. God spoke beforehand through men under the influence of the Holy Spirit and he spoke about the things that would come to pass. So in Isaiah 53 and verse 12, you find one who is going to be numbered with the transgressors. And here is Jesus of Nazareth and he is led out with two criminals and he is hanged between them. In Psalm 22 and verse 16, there's a reference to crucifixion, the piercing of hands and feet, that his garments would be divided. Is there just two verses later in Psalm 22 and verse 18? The mockery that he will face is in Psalm 2. It's in Psalm 22, where you have the, the bulls of Bashan who are groaning and growling around him. Mocking and scorning that aha, aha language that is, is in the lips now of those who are looking upon him. He's identified as God's anointed one, Psalm 2. He himself prays, Isaiah 53 and verse 12. They offer him sour wine to drink, Psalm 69 and verse 21. He receives prayers. Psalm 115, verse 12, Judges 16, 1 Samuel chapter 1. He, he is addressed as God in this passage. In Isaiah 51 and verse 3, he offers paradise as his divine right to bestow. Is that an accident? Can you look at that and say, well, that's lucky, isn't it? Luck is not a Christian concept. It's not a Christian word. This isn't even in that sense just fate. This is the fulfillment of God's plan. And the Lord has told us beforehand that this is what Messiah will do and this is what will be done to Messiah so that when all of those threads come together, you can look at the man upon whom all the promises meet and you can say, I know who this one is. 
This Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And in him, as Luke has been saying all the way, the kingdom of God has come. Remember why Luke wrote this book. For a man called Theophilus. I want you, Theophilus, to know the certainty of the things in which you've been instructed. And he might as well be saying here, now, remember what it says there, and 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 there. And I'm not exaggerating, I'm probably counting too short. And consider how they speak of this Jesus. That you can be confident that the man who undergoes these things is the one promised by God who would save his people from their sins. It is proper for you and me, as we work our way through the Old Testament, to be looking for Jesus Christ. To be seeing him on every page. Read him with eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, and you will see Christ. If you struggle to see Christ, ask God's Spirit who gave this book to help you to open your eyes that you might behold these wonderful things in his law. It means, my friends, that this morning you and I can read this without a shadow of a doubt. Jesus of Nazareth is the saviour of sinners like us. He is the promised redeemer, the ransomer. This is the Christ or the Messiah, suffering and dying in the place of sinners like us, to save us from our sins. Coincidence? Nonsense. Luck? Don't be daft. Chance? No such thing. Promise? Providence? Power? Bringing all things to pass. You can trust God's word and you can trust the God of the word. The prophecies are being fulfilled. And there's an intensification as we come to these last moments. The second thing that we should observe is pardon that is being pleaded. Pardon that is pleaded. It is a remarkable request for an innocent man dying at wicked hands to call out to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What might Christ have asked for? There would be, on one level, a perfect legitimacy in calling down judgment rather than mercy. We know that God delights in righteousness. We read that the reign of Messiah is marked by righteousness. He could righteously have said, Lord, punish these men because they are doing this wickedness to an innocent man. But the marvel is this, that not only is Jesus dying for sinners, but he's praying for sinners as he dies at their hand. Now perhaps again, sometimes we doubt the love, the compassion, the mercy of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we think that he's asking too much or maybe using metaphorical language. Remember what he'd instructed in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 27. But I say to you who hear, those of you who really understand what I'm saying, love your enemies, 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. People say, well, that's, that's a metaphor. It means be nice. It doesn't mean be nice. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. You can imagine Peter, can't you? Because he does it in other places, saying, well, surely, Lord, you, you, know, you wouldn't mean at this point. Surely there comes a sort of a tipping point. You, you can be merciful and compassionate and you can pray for people up to this point, but you wouldn't go beyond that, would you? You wouldn't plead for God to have mercy upon the men who are hammering in the nails that are attaching you to the cross. You wouldn't ask God to show favour to the people who have rejected you, accused you falsely, and now are calling out upon you in blasphemy. Yes, you would. You would if you are Christ, and you would if you are a follower of Christ. What is the impact of this? What, what do you think normally people would do? What do you think the thieves did when they were nailed to the crosses? I think they probably cursed and cried out against them. Christ pleads and prays. It may be significant. We're not going to get there this morning. Verse 47. The centurion who's in charge of the death detail. He glorified God when he saw what had happened. Saying certainly this was a righteous man. I find it easy to imagine. That it helped to reach that conclusion. When he heard Jesus pleading as he was lying there. For the blessing of God upon those who did these things. I think it's worth remembering though. That Christ doesn't just dismiss sin. As if it doesn't matter. That's one of the mistakes we often make with regard to forgiveness. Lord pretend it hasn't happened. Lord let's just, let's just let bygones be bygones. Christ isn't saying either. That ignorance is an excuse for sin. What does he pray? Father forgive them. Forgive them. Teach them what they are doing. Convince them of their sin. Bring them to yourself. <coughs> Maybe that's beginning to happen in verse 47. The centurion is standing there and said, right, bring the next one. Okay, nails, ropes, drop him in. And while that's going on, Jesus is saying, Father, forgive this man. Have mercy upon him. He doesn't know what he's doing. It may be that there's reference to this too later on when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. I'm inclined to think that this prayer extends beyond the Romans who are carrying out the act of crucifixion to, to the whole crowd that is gathered around. And what do you see? You you with lawless hands, you crucified the Lord of glory. 
What must we do to be saved? Trust him. And they do. And they are forgiven. They are cleansed through the blood of the Lamb of God, which they themselves shed on the cross. Now, do you think he will receive you? Is there a person here this morning who can hear Jesus of Nazareth as these soldiers nail him to a cross, pleading, Father, forgive them, who would say, but he wouldn't accept me. There's no mercy for me. There's no forgiveness for me. Can't you trust a man like this? Can't you trust a saviour whose heart is so full of compassion and mercy and kindness? Pardon, pleaded. Then there's pain inflicted. Again, we've got to pick out some of these threads. Today we might call it psychological torture because it goes beyond the physical sufferings. Remember that our Lord had been tempted early on by the devil and the devil had come to him and he basically said to him, if you're the son of God, then save yourself. Make the stones become bread. Jump off the temple pinnacle and the angels will catch you before you hit the bottom. Bow down to me and I will give you all that this world has to offer. And when Christ resisted him, he departed until an opportune time. He waited for the moment. I think this is another of those moments, maybe even the climactic moment, as group after group standing around the cross rubs, as it were, salt into Christ's wounds. You've got the people who are gazing unmoved. This naked man hangs before them, his body flayed. He is in an agony. His head is bowed. Again, the, the sufferings through which he passes, body and soul, are on display. Wherever skull was, it would probably have been deliberately in a public place, especially at a time of Passover. This is designed for maximum exposure. They want people to see what is going on, and the people are gazing without pity. They couldn't care less, it seems. There's a sort of a, an ugly apathy. Crucify him, crucify him, they'd cried. And now he is. There it is. Just another criminal. The religious leaders go a step further. They're sneering viciously. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. Here's this kind of blind delight. They're reveling in this. Now again, you'll have seen events like this. You, there are times when you look at things. Times when you, you, you observe things. Coming home from London this week, there's a fight breaking out on the platform. Two teenagers beating one another. One of them got the other one down in a headlock and the fist and the elbows going down on the skull. It's, oh, oh, it's awful. You cheer, you sneer. Ha ha! Now we've got him. See him suffering now. They confess his strength and grace. He saved others. They've got the whole history before him, my friends. 
They know the people who were healed. They know the people out of whom he cast demons. Some of them are standing, we know, around the cross, maybe at a little distance at this point. They've got the testimonies, even people who are brought back from the grave, and they acknowledge the good that Jesus has done in power and in pity. That whole history of Luke's gospel, that wasn't done in a corner. They confess his strength and they revel in his weakness. Some Messiah you are. You can save others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. And what a nonsense. Look at him. This naked, broken man. Everything he did, all that he performed. If he really were the Christ, he'd help himself. The Roman soldiers take up the refrain. Yeah, come on. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You can hear the scorn there too, can't you? So much for Israel's king. So much for the ruler of the Jews. The dying thieves. They're abusing desperately. You know, sometimes you reach the point where you just don't care anymore. That seems to be the point which they've reached. And again, it's, there's something that's almost natural here. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. You know, if you've got this power, then do something. Get yourself off the cross and get us down with you. Now, do you notice what's interesting about all the people who speak there? What are the rulers talking about? What are the Romans talking about? What are the criminals talking about? Salvation. You see it? Let him save himself. If you are the king, save yourself. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. They understand the right issue, but they're utterly confused as to what's really taking place. They see his weakness. And they mock it and they're angry with it. We should see his might and his mercy. What are they expecting? Physical deliverance. If you're really the Messiah, come down. Why? Because Messiahs are these military majesties. That's what he's supposed to be. If you're really great David's greater son, then you should be able to save yourself and to save us also. The soldiers, they're mocking almost on the same basis. So much for the king of Israel. And the criminals? Take away the temporal consequences of our sin. We're suffering here and we don't like it. Save yourself and us. And he could. On that level, he could. How do we know? Because we've seen what he can do. Because we know from other gospel records that when Peter drew that sword in the garden to cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, the Lord Jesus said, don't need that. If I wished now I could call upon my Father in heaven and he would send legions of angels. Even without that, when they asked, 
Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And he said, I think with something of holy majesty, I am. And they fell back to the ground. Do you think now he couldn't do that? It's not that he cannot. It is that he will not. See, when you understand salvation, it's not that he cannot save himself. It is that he must save his people. And he cannot do that if he comes down from the cross. See, the eyes of the flesh look at a crucified saviour and they say, ha, weakness. The eyes of faith look at Jesus on the cross and they say, there is strength. The strength of love that holds him there suffering under the curse of his beloved father. The strength of compassion that is pleading now, even for those who are putting him to death. The pain of being challenged at the very point in which he is showing himself a saviour. And then there's a person who is declared. You hear the misery, you hear the mockery. This is the king of the Jews. It's written in three languages. The same three that we referred to before. Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic. This is the king of the Jews. The misery and the mockery. The mercy and the majesty. Which do you see when you look at the king of the Jews? Now, do you believe it? The Jews hated it. They said to Pilate, take it down, or at least write, he said he's the king of the Jews. Pilate, perhaps, and, and these Romans, they seem to enjoy the irony of it. Here's your Israelite king. That's the basis on which you brought him to us. But you, how do you respond to it? As in the eye of your mind, you consider Christ hanging, bleeding, suffering, dying under God's wrath and curse on the cross and you read that sign over the top, this is the king of the Jews. Do you own him as such? Do you see there in his sufferings and sorrows great David's greatest son? Do you see the Lord of all? Someone did. One man, at least here, grasps this. We're not entirely sure how, but somehow something of the activity that is taking place, something of the authority that belongs to Jesus, something of the dignity that is his as the king of the Jews is penetrating. The Holy Spirit has opened one man's eyes. Remember how along this way we've, we've remarked, isn't it wonderful? This is where God brings a Simon from Cyrene into contact with Jesus, the Saviour. Here he brings one of these thieves. Perhaps the thief had been brought up in a Jewish home where he'd heard about Messiah. Perhaps he's been instructed beforehand. Perhaps he's heard some of these stories. Perhaps he himself has heard Jesus praying and has marvelled at his silence in the face of such suffering. We'll consider him again, God willing, this evening. 
but he offers a rebuke. Don't you even fear God, he says to his companion, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And he makes a confession. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he brings a prayer. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he obtains a promise. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, if you're going to read Isaiah or Psalm 22, then you need to read all of it. Here's Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. As Christ opens his eyes amidst the pain and the heat and the dust, he sees the travail of his soul. One of these is one of his. He is dying for him. And from that bloody throne, he speaks like a king. Assuredly, amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's an immediate deliverance this very day. There's an immediate assurance. You will, not you may, well, let's see how things go, but today you will. There's an immediate relationship. You will be with me. And there's an immediate prospect. You will be with me in paradise. You will know the blessings of Eden before the day is out. You will be restored to fellowship with God. All your pains, all your griefs, all your sorrows, all your guilt, all your shame. I will take it away. I will remember you. The man speaks as if to a king. Because that's what he sees in Jesus of Nazareth. And he receives a king's Declaration. I will take you away from this sin blighted world. Your soul will be with me, which is far better. Ransomed by my blood, healed by my power, restored to God, forgiven by me dying for you. They crucified him. It's so simple. It's so stark. It is salvation. What do you see when they crucify him? 
Do you see the man who cannot save himself? Or do you see the man who dies to save his people from their sins? And do you trust him? And find in him and from him that same peace, joy, assurance and prospect that he promised the thief on the cross next to him. Amen.